0: Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack DeRora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two.
1: You know, for a while it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became how do we as lawyers make a difference?
0: And now it's not just us. Today we have Mark Brown, constitutional law expert and professor at Capital University Law School. He's back with us to talk about the Supreme Court's decision in the abortion case, Dobbs versus Jackson. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks for joining us again. Great to be here, Conzo. Jack, uh, that decision was 200-plus pages, and um, I don't think I read a decision that long since law school. How about you?
1: I try to avoid that.
0: (laughs) But I found one line in it uh, that I can't get past. It's where uh, Justice Alito says, It's time to heed the Constitution, and return the issue of abortion to the people's elective representatives. Uh, Let me give you that again. We're going to return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. So basically, he's casting this decision to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade as a win for democracy, a uh, political freedom issue, a states' rights issue. And my question for Justice Alito is, has he ever been to Ohio? (laughs) Has he ever heard of gerrymandering?
1: (laughs) I don't know if he's been to Ohio, but he knows what gerrymandering is. And what's interesting about his viewpoint in that holding is that the Supreme Court has not done what I think it needs to do in terms of addressing gerrymandering. In fact, it's made inconsistent decisions and it hasn't done what is necessary to allow everybody's vote to count. And we've had a couple decisions. They both had to do with um, mapping that was unfair for people of color. So in one case called Miller versus the Alabama Secretary of State, Alabama created a new map. It was considered to be unfair by the Dems. It goes before a three-judge federal panel, and they determined that the plan unfairly Affected black voters and violated the Voting Rights Act. So they said, so they denied the state's request to stay that holding, or in layman's terms, to freeze that holding while they could appeal it. So they go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court doesn't stay, or in layman talk, doesn't freeze the holding. So what happened? So this map that a federal court determined was unlawful and Hurt the black vote is allowed to be used as a map for the next election. Now, here's what's interesting. Mark can probably tell us about it, but there's apparently this doctrine from another case called Purcell, which the Supreme Court says look, we're not going to get involved in cases when they're too close to an election, right? Except the election was four months off. (laughs) So, what was the harm? So, then in another case from Wisconsin, new map favored by the Dems, approved by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. GOP doesn't like it, goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. This time, the Supreme Court rejects the map. But this time, the primaries are only like three or four weeks away. So, everybody's sitting around saying, What happened to that Purcell decision where you don't get involved too soon before something significant regarding voting is to occur? So for Justice Alito to say, we're going to hand it back to the states, I think the issue is, gee, the states aren't handling their own voting laws in such a way that you're going to get a fair vote.
0: Well, think about Ohio for a minute. Our Supreme Court has again rejected the uh, maps that have been drawn yet we're going to have an election in November and we're going to be voting for people that are coming to us from unconstitutionally drawn districts, voting districts. So, you know, how can we have effective representation on an issue that is as important as abortion when the Republicans are going to win again and the only threat to their jobs are people that are more conservative or further to the right?
1: Well, an interesting and Mark can correct me. There's another case pending from North Carolina where the North Carolina, I don't know if it's the GOP, the legislature, is saying, hey, the only people that can decide voting rights, it's the legislature itself, nobody else, including a court, a state court can get involved. I'm not confident that the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court is going to do us any favors with that decision.
0: What do you think, Mark? I mean, uh, is it really throwing the the, uh, issue back to our elective representatives in the states?
2: Um, You mean with the abortion case? That proves way too much, of course, because, I mean, if Alito is saying um, democracy, you know, should take care of these rights, well, you can say that about any constitutional rights. The reason, in part, we have a constitution is to prevent democracy from... Um, overriding people's rights. You know, the Bill of Rights, that's what to some extent it's all about. Um, Same thing goes with, I mean, the gerrymandering problem, the redistricting problem is really troubling right now, and the Supreme Court has been, um, let's say, less than candid about its application of certain doctrines, like the Purcell Principle. You know, in theory, the Purcell Principle is is all well and good. Uh, generally, you look at it and you say, oh, of course, you shouldn't make last minute changes. Um, we should have the rules in place um, in time for the election. And that's what Purcell you know, says. But then the Supreme Court's application of that, um, Jack, as you point out, has been um less than than stellar, sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And it seems the Supreme Court is uh, bending over backwards to favor the Republican party. And that's what we fear in the North Carolina case that you also mentioned, Jack, um, this independent state legislature theory uh, where the Republicans are arguing that the you know, the state Supreme courts can't do anything with um, at least congressional redistricting because it's up to the state legislatures. Well. And that's the dangerous case, and the US Supreme Court could very well buy that. And if they did, uh, that would be quite a change. They would have to overrule a couple of precedents um, to do that. But of course, the court right now is um, eager to overrule precedent, as we see with the uh, the Mississippi abortion case, the Dobbs case. And as we also see with um, and, um, freedom of religion cases, um, that the court is handing down left and right, overruling precedent left and right. And we also see it with the, um, uh, the Second Amendment cases, which over the last you know, 10, 15 years have changed um, American law on gun ownership completely.
0: I read an interesting article that um, made the point that uh, maybe it's not so much uh, the issue of the court, but the problem is our Constitution, and you know, we think about it, uh, it was written in what, 1787 by 55 white male landowners. It's only a few pages long, and you look at the text, it doesn't give a lot of guidance. So, in our system, it gives nine people, and they don't have to be lawyers, they all are, that gives these nine people the ultimate interpretation over what are the rights. And, uh, Mark, you wrote in your recent article that constitutional rights on both sides of the aisle
2: are creatures of the court. Can you explain that? Well, the Constitution, as you pointed out, is, is pretty open-ended. Most of the terms used, like liberty and um, and even religion and the right to bear arms, those, uh, those terms and phrases are open to interpretation. They don't necessarily, um, they're not self-evident. And that's the way it's been for 200 years. And the court has interpreted and has breathed life into various provisions, has sometimes changed its mind, but quite often respects previous decisions. So what we wind up with is pretty much with fundamental rights in the United States, um, court created fundamental rights. That's the reality. Uh, For most of our cherished constitutional rights, um, abortion was no different.
0: I don't uh, expect... The Supreme Court to bow to popular opinion. I mean, its job in our system is to interpret the the Constitution. I think we can expect uh, some uh, that the court's not hypocritical, not inconsistent with. And when I say the court, I mean the same justices that write one decision vote seemingly in a different manner on another decision. Um, But um, what I found interesting was usually when a Supreme Court decision comes out, the only criticism that it gets before it's written are from the dissenting justices. And we know they read each other's stuff, right, because the majority opinion will mention the dissent, and of course the dissent will mention the... But with the leaked draft of Dobbs, Alito had his opinion vetted by scholars and lay people across the globe and what Mark I found incredible, and, and maybe it's it's arrogance,
2: he didn't change anything. And there was a lot of valid criticism. He did not change anything. Uh, the only difference in the final draft as opposed to the leaked draft was really his response to the dissent, which he had to add to his original draft. But other than that, you're correct. He did not change a word, even though some of us thought he would soften it up a little bit. He did not. You know, he stayed with the egregiously, um, Roe was egregiously wrong um, argument. And his historical discussion, which was severely criticized by lots of very competent historians, he didn't change that at all. He stuck with his his history. In my opinion, it was, I, I think his historical discussion was correctly criticized. But, well, in in really
0: the way that he analyzed this right uh, was based upon the historical context, is that correct? He, I mean, that's that, what he said. Yes. That's that's it's kind of a new way to look at constitutional rights, would that be fair?
2: Um it, it is for us moderns. Um we moderns uh, post um the famous switch in time that saved the nine back in 1930. Uh, 36 and 37, Uh, we modern constitutional scholars uh, tend to recognize that history is a part of it, but history is not the end all. Instead, there's a lot more that goes into it, into the the constitutional discussion, into the constitutional conclusions. And what Alito and, uh, frankly, the majority on the court right now are trying to do is they're trying to rewrite the way the court goes about it. They're trying to go back 100 plus years and, um, and claim that it's all a matter of text, it's all a matter of history.
1: And that's... Correct me if I'm wrong. The starting point for these originalists is do we see it in black and white in the text? Yes. And if we don't see it in black and white, then we have to analyze history to see what rights existed from 200 years ago. I think you're right. Okay. Um, so really okay, I want to make sure I got that premise right. What I find f- at fault is, and I had a, heard a really good discussion about this, the Supreme Court isn't really prepared to do a precise in, in, uh, and accurate historical inquiry. It's not geared for that. And then as I was doing some reading and pre- preparation for today, I thought, Or I saw cases where, or writings about abortion laws in the past. So Alito says, you know, we've always had abortion laws. There's never been a right. But if I'm not mistaken, some number of those abortion laws only precluded abortion after the quickening. Gonzo, you know what the quickening is? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I, I I just learned the word yesterday. It's when the child in the womb kicks So I'm thinking, well, if abortion was only unlawful after the quickening, don't you have to put that in your historical mix? And I got to believe that just looking at modern laws in the 1900s doesn't tell the whole picture. So are we at a position now where we're subject to a less than accurate inquiry of history to determine what our constitutional rights are?
2: Well, you're right. The Supreme Court justices are not historians. Um, they tend to rely quite heavily on these amici brief, um, friend of the court briefs for their, their history. And of course, those who write the the amicus briefs, there are different ways to pronounce that. They've got their own axes to grind. So the court is not getting through the briefs a, a neutral picture of what of what history said. And Alito really butchers the um the historical discussion about um quickening and and the right to um to abortion he, he tries his his darndest to um to soften it and say well even those states that recognized a right to abortion up to quickening they had exceptions for that too and he tries to paint it as if they were really banning abortion from conception when they weren't and he does i i think i'm not an historian either but I think he, he does a pretty poor job of um,
1: of rewriting the history. He also said something else that bothered me. He goes into this analysis, okay, we don't see it in the text. I don't see any history to back up lawful abortion. And, oh, by the way, abortion differs from other rights. I, I can't remember if he compares it to interracial marriage or he's comparing it to contraception. But he says, but the difference here is that we have the loss of a life, and that's a moral question. And I thought, wait a minute. If you want to go historically, don't you have to go historically and say traditionally people have been mixed on that issue? That's not a that's not a decision that a significant portion of America believes to be true. That is the morality question. Am I wrong about what he's doing there?
2: No, I don't think you're wrong at all. He does exactly what you... You stated he does um, try to distance the the Mississippi conclusion that there is no right to abortion. He tries to distance distance that from same sex marriage and contraception even, and he says, "Look, those are different because there wasn't a life at stake." Um, but the Supreme Court um, has never ever said that a fetus is a life. That's just not constitutionally speaking something that's really ever been on the table it is now i think but i mean you go back for example to them we were talking earlier about gerrymandering and redistricting how how do you count and it's been clear since the founding that only live born human beings are counted Uh, fetus has never been counted as a person in the census so they're never added in to um, the number of people in the districts that's just something that's never happened you know, it may be going forward. We're going to have to do that. We're going to have to start counting, you know, the fetus, too, as, as a person in the census. Uh, that, that's just an example of how far I think Alito's opinion strays from um, conventional constitutional understandings. I think that the um, elections that are coming
0: up in the next few months and in the next few years are going to be a referendum on this issue. And, you know, one of the things that bothers me are the current, uh, representatives who haven't been through an election cycle that feel the need to piggyback on this case. Ohio has a, um, a bill that was, um, uh, uh, a, a bill that was, um, uh, brought by representative gross and it's a house bill number uh, 704 and going to your point mark it reads the state of ohio shall recognize the personhood and protect the constitutional rights of all unborn human individuals from the moment of conception now i'm not sure exactly what all those words mean in the order that he put them in there, but it seems to me that Ohio wants to give a fetus uh, the, the uh, moniker of life at the moment of conception, if anybody can pinpoint that. And, um, you know, this person hasn't even been through an election yet to, s- to see if the people of Ohio want him sitting in the General Assembly making uh, these types of rules.
2: I think we're going to see a lot of that across the um, primarily southern United States, but in Ohio,
0: too, you're going to see a lot of that. A lot of
2: our representatives
0: are going to now have to um, uh, state where they are on this issue, and it's an important issue uh, uh, for a lot of people. And and, um, I don't know if they can overcome, the voters can overcome the gerrymandering. What do you think, Jack?
1: That would mean passing amendments, what were they, 15 and 18, were those the gerrymandering amendments? Whatever they were, now uh, adopting new amendments with guardrails in more specific language to prevent the workaround, or maybe workaround is too nice, to prevent the GOP from completely disregarding what was in the last two amendments. And I'm sorry, I don't think they were 15 and 18. I think that was the years they were passed, 2015 and 2018. One for the state maps, one for the congressional maps. So we got to go through that whole voting process again, only because we have the GOP that won't abide by what's in the language of the amendments. Well, so we
0: have a case now in the Supreme Court. Is it still there? I know there were some jurisdictional arguments that uh, by some uh, Ohio abortion clinics that are are making the argument that the Ohio Constitution protects a woman's right to choose. Have you looked
2: at that at all, Mark? Yes, I have, actually. It's... um it's a fairly strong argument argument in my opinion um because of Roe against Wade in 1973 the Ohio Supreme Court hasn't had to do anything with with abortion since then but um the the argument that they make is and they're making this argument they being the the abortion rights advocates are making this across the United States um, it's a solid argument what is what is in the
0: Ohio constitution um if you recall, that that they base this right on that, that obviously Alito doesn't see it in the United States Constitution.
2: It's Ohio's version of due process of law and privacy, even though Ohio doesn't have the privacy word either. But it's kind of a recreation of what was argued in Roe against Wade just under the verbiage of the Ohio Constitution. Even though that, to be to be sure, even though that language in the Ohio Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion, um, just like the federal constitution did not, um, still trying to build on what Ohio's Supreme Court has recognized in the past and, and imply that right to choose abortion from that.
0: There was a, one uh, commentator, a conservative commentator, that was lamenting that, you know, they're trying to get the Ohio Supreme Court to look at it before the election because, unfortunately, our justices are, you know, uh, governed by their politics. And I thought, well, that seems to be a little hy- hypocritical <laughs> <laughs> where we are on Roe v. Wade, but um, it will be interesting to see because I think it's—I think that issue is going to affect our Supreme Court races, um, also.
1: I want to make a comparison to the Dobbs case and something else that's very private, and that would be uh, same-sex marriage. So in Dobbs, we have the court saying. We don't see it anywhere in the Constitution, and we don't we we can't inf, infer a right under the Constitution. So all we're left to do is to look at history, right? I mean that's the analysis, am I right, Mark?
2: Uh, that's what Alito tries to say. That's what he tries to convey.
1: Right. Now Even
2: though I don't necessarily agree that he's
1: doing that. So Okay. So now let's look at and I'm going to mispronounce it, Oberfeldt. The gay marriage case.
2: Obergefell. Oh,
1: yes. Obergefell. I never get it right. What was the Supreme Court's logic there? Because that's not in the Constitution. You can't find, if anything, you'll find gay bashing over the last 200 years. How do you justify that one? Although, get, don't get me wrong, I'm glad it happened, right? I'm glad it happened. But logically, I, I'm, I don't see how you how the court handled those two cases differently.
2: Well, no, I agree with you. If you look at the Constitution, there's nothing in the federal Constitution um, that speaks to marriage. Um, the word is not in the Constitution. If you're looking for a fundamental right to marriage, um, opposite sex between a man and a woman, uh, you're going to have to find that in primarily the Due Process Clause, the, the liberty language in the Due Process Clause. The, of the Supreme Court is also used— Of the 14th Amendment. Of the 14th Amendment. Okay. It's also used equal protection in the 14th Amendment. Too, even though the Equal Protection Clause doesn't say anything about marriage either. So the Supreme Court's had to inject the word marriage into the Constitution, e- even to protect opposite sex marriage.
1: So if, it's under, let me get that straight. It's under the liberty provision in the, in the 14th Amendment. Yes. But yet the liberty issue, was that not argued in the Dobbs case?
2: Well, Dobbs was all about liberty. That's where, if you go back to Roe against Wade and go back before that to the Griswold case, the contraception case, that's where we lodge the right to contraception. That's where we lodge the the right to choose an abortion. That's where we lodge the right to have kids, the opposite side of abortion. It's all in the Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment.
1: So Alito says, okay, those are different because here we have the loss of a human life. That's what makes it different.
2: That's what he tries to say. Yes.
1: Okay. So he's really injecting his own morals at that point.
2: Oh, no doubt. That's why okay. I say Alito tries to make it look as if he's relying on text and history, but he's not. I mean, it, I mean, there's just no there's no way around it. If you're a Supreme Court justice, there's not enough text in the Constitution to support most of the fundamental rights that we cherish. So you're always going to be injecting your own uh, morals, your own policies, your own preferences. That's the reality. And the uh, to the extent Alito and the other conservative justices um, say they're not, um, they're not credible.
1: All right, I'm, let me ask one more question, then I'll turn it back over to Gonzo. Forgive me for hogging the questions here, Gonzo. So let's pretend tomorrow you're on the Supreme Court and you have to decide Dobbs. And you wanted, and you think abortion should be held to be a constitutional right. How would you, how would you justify your opinion?
2: Well, one way to do it would be through the equal protection clause, which was what Justice Ginsburg argued before she was a justice. When she was a a law professor, Um, she argued, and a lot of people have argued, that prohibiting abortion is basically discrimination against women how so um because biologically only women get pregnant so by regulating only something that um, afflicts if you will women you're you're discriminating based on gender and that's the argument and that's um a pretty credible argument. Now, the problem with that argument is there's this crazy Supreme Court case. I don't know if it's crazy or not, but it's been around <laughs> forever. It's called Gedaldig against low. and it came out about the same time as Roe against Wade, uh, but the Supreme Court said that pregnancy discrimination by government was not a violation of equal protection. Um, it's an old case It came out before gender was treated as a fully quasi-suspect class so some people have questioned whether Gadaldig against ALO should still be good law. And, and Alito even cites that case in the Dobbs decision. He cites Gedaldig as um, supporting his conclusion, and it does. Uh, but if you could go back and overturn Gedaldig, which wouldn't be that hard to do because it's a fairly fragile decision in my estimation anyway, uh, then you could build on that and say, well, You know, prohibitions on abortion are the equivalent of pregnancy discrimination because they're pregnancy discrimination that violates uh, the Equal Protection Clause because it's gender discrimination. And that's another way you can get at it. takes a little bit of work. What I also
0: found interesting uh, with uh, Justice Alito justifying his opinion is he invoked Brown versus the Board of Education, Mm -hmm. which is a fairly well-known decision about separate but equal. And the commentary on that, again, just criticizes his analysis. Um, the one thing I found interesting about the Brown case was it was a nine to zero decision. And, um, and it was basically based upon this idea that um, separate but equal had no place in public education because public education was becoming such an important part of America. So, you know this whole idea of going back and having a historical reference. Brown seems to suggest no. You you got to look at what's going on in the context of these constitutional rights. But did you do you agree with some of these commentators that the Brown case does not really support Alito's analysis?
2: Oh, I don't think Brown supports Alito at all. And not only was Brown a nine to zero uh, decision; it was unanimous. But also Brown was not dropped out of the out of the sky out of the blue onto the American um, public instead Brown Brown was a culmination of a series of decisions um, dealing with education um, cases like Sweat Against Painter which is in the constitutional circles well known You know, people never heard of it but the, uh, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund Thurgood Marshall in particular um, went about brown in a very uh, meticulous way they they started with higher education uh, they started with graduate programs and law schools uh, going back to the the 30s even and then they took a hiatus during the second world war but then they came back to them in the in the 40s in the late 40s and they challenged these um exclusive exclusively white programs in southern law schools and southern graduate programs these southern schools used to have what Uh, We call the bus ticket programs, where if you if you were white, you could go to, let's say, the University of Florida law school. But if you were black, we'd give you a we'd give you a bus ticket to Boston and you'd have to find a program up there. Long story short, in any event, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund challenged these programs one by one and had them struck down, notwithstanding Plessy against Ferguson. And that chipped away at separate Mm. but equal. So by the time we got to Brown against Board of Education, which dealt with primary and secondary schools, it wasn't a large step to simply say, "Oh, we've already dealt with this in the educational setting." Mm-hmm. It's a small step with with Dobbs. It's out of the blue. All of a sudden, you're going from the right to choose abortion to nothing, and that's a huge step. By a five to four
0: court, it's remarkable. Are you going to be a teaching that decision
2: in, uh, in your upcoming courses? Well, Alito's cleared up a couple of classes for me because now there's not a fundamental right to choose an abortion. Um, so we don't have to talk about that anymore.
1: Are we starting to see this historical approach, and forgive me, Gonzo, for taking a left turn here, in cases concerning guns? Yes,
2: we are, and it's a, um, its really an a-historical approach because, in, like I said, I'm not an historian, but I've—I've I've read all the, the decisions and the, the Supreme Court's treatment of gun ownership now, in the last 10, 15 years, going back to the Heller against Doe decision, has been, um, in my opinion, a They've created this history of going, of protected gun ownership under the federal Constitution, and that's just not there. Well, I, it's,
1: I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I've referred to him before in another podcast. I think his name is Adam Winkler from a California university. He wrote the book, Gunfighter, Gun Rights. Can't remember. It's really good. It's a compendium of the history of gun laws. And man, he makes it sound like even in the colonial times, there was gun registration of some sort. He talks about the Wild West really wasn't the Wild West You, when you went into a town, you gave your guns to the sheriff and things of that nature. So I'm thinking, what am I getting wrong here? There is a history of gun safety and gun control in the U.S. that for some reason the court not picking up. Am, am I missing something there?
2: I don't think you're missing anything. It was remarkable when the court handed down that, that Heller against Doe case, which was the the first case out of the Supreme Court to ever recognize an individual's right to uh, possess a weapon. Um, the Supreme Court had never said that before. And um, it, it changed everything. And I think the court there, Scalia, wrote the majority opinion. It was a five to four decision. Stevens wrote the principal dissent. and. Um, you, you would read those opinions and the historical analyses in both and just say, somebody's wrong here because they're completely competing
1: histories. And I, my take on it is that Scalia was wrong. This, um... Why don't you talk about what the Supreme Court has, has at its disposal when it's talking about history? I mean, what assets does it have to conduct a historical review? It's got a pretty
2: good library upstairs with a bunch of law books in it, but there are no history books upstairs in the library. Um, It has access to the Library of Congress, and the librarian is great about um, getting books from the Library of Congress. Um, And it's got, each justice has four clerks. Uh, The chief justice usually has an extra one. And they're smart kids, but they're not historians either. So I guess what I'm getting to is it doesn't have any more... Um, expertise than than basically any good library in the United States. Well,
0: when you think about it, too, um, with these justices and Justice Alito making the point that if we look at the, hist- the the issue in this historical context, we'll have more confidence in what the founding fathers wanted. I think people who aren't lawyers know that history can be distorted. History can be confused and misunderstood. I I just don't see it creating more consistency when they when they're doing that. And and as you said, Mark, that their own decisions bore that out. That the two justices on the Supreme Court disagree about what history had to say about this uh, certain subject. Um, But back to the Second Amendment for a minute. Yeah, we think about these justices guessing what the original intent was, like our Constitution's original intent has anything to do with the superpower we are today with 300 million plus people you know Uh, but when they're thinking about the original intent this is one of the few amendments that tell us what their intent was Uh, I brought it up so I don't misquote it but it starts with and it's a very simple amendment a well regulated militia being necessary to secure to the security of a free state They're telling us why they're writing this amendment. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I I might um, argue with them a little bit, Jack, about where they're putting their commas in there. But essentially, the founding fathers are telling us that this has to do with a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. But I don't remember Justice Thomas really talking too much about that, did he?
1: No.
2: Um,
1: You mean Scalia?
0: Well, Thomas is, it... is, is is the most recent author of... Um, oh, in the
1: New uh, York, York the case. New York case. Pistol. New York Forgive me, Gonzo. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and neither does Scalia. Well, Scalia talks quite a bit about that, actually, in his Heller opinion, which was the first opinion. And he dismisses it as um, a prefatory language that really was meaningless. Um, so I, like I said, I, I had the... I worked in Washington at the Supreme Court back in the 1993 term, and I... I attended a speech that Scalia gave to a bunch of foreign journalists at the Supreme Court. It was um, an off-the-record speech. And the American Press was not there, but he was asked quite a bit. This is before, of course, he handed down the Heller decision. He was asked uh, by several of the foreign journalists about, you know, the right to bear arms and gun ownership in the United States. And he and he specifically said he said, "Well, even if there is" a right to bear arms in the Second Amendment, that would only bind the federal government. It would never, ever limit what the states can do. He went on, well, it was off the record, but he said that, I'll never forget it. And of course, he um he changed 100 degrees on that one um, within just a decade and it did just the opposite. But the uh, to get to your point, Gonzo, the original understanding behind the Second Amendment was as you stated. It was to protect the state's militias. It was a federalism measure to keep the federal government out of the state militias. And it had nothing to do, in my professional opinion, with an individual's right to possess handguns or long guns or or any kinds of of
0: weapons. There are uh, too many voters today that believe that the Second Amendment gives them an individual right to bear arms which, and Jack knows my opinion on, on the politics and why we're in the shape we're in in a lot of different ways. But with all of those voters out there, it's no surprise to me why politicians take that position and ultimately get judges on the bench that take that position. And that's why we have the problems we have today because if you read that text, there is no way you can come to that conclusion. There's an individual right um, to bear arms. But um, as trial lawyers and appellate lawyers, we're often faced with decisions we don't like that we certainly criticize and pick apart. But in our system, we have to live with it. And it's just disappointing to me that the justices at the very top of our system can't be more consistent. I don't know, more academic um more neutral in their in their arguments, even if I disagree with those.
1: You know, the one thing uh, that strikes me about the gun laws and the gun issue, if you want to take this fundamentalist, originalist, texturalist, I have a hard time saying that last word, approach, I'm wondering why nobody says, wait a minute, do you really think those fellows in 1787 created an amendment and would approve an amendment that results in over 40,000 gun deaths a year. I mean, just on a reasonable basis, that's an absurd proposition. But the Supreme Court doesn't seem to care about the ramifications of its decision. And what am I I missing, Mark, by making that kind of a simplistic (laughs) argument about the Second Amendment?
2: I don't think you're missing anything. I think you've raised some interesting... um, points. For example, let's go back to 1787. What did the framers think about their original intent? Did they intend their intent to have any significance at all um, in terms of future laws and future interpretations of the Mm. Constitution? And the answer to that is pretty clearly, no, they did not want their intent to be considered. They met in secret. They did not keep an official record. Madison's notes, which provide the best evidence of what was said, were not published until after his death. Madison refused to publish them because he was sworn to secrecy. Um, so the original intent was that their original intent not be known beyond the, the text, of the Constitution of the United States. And so for us now to, you know, genuflect to original intent is I think a complete about-face. I saw a, um, I read an article,
0: excuse me, where uh, the commentator said that Thomas Jefferson believed that a new constitution should be written by each new generation. So, you know, if that's true, then that tells me, right, Mark, they they understood that they don't know everything, and they certainly don't know everything that's coming up. Um, And to uh, start to interpret this document to make it, inflexible, dysfunctional, seems to be a disservice to uh, the founding fathers, in my opinion.
1: I like it. Yeah, it really should be a breathing, living document as opposed to let's figure out what was being thought of 230 or 40 years ago. Hey, even though I got us on this gun track, I want to go back to Dobbs. The knee-jerk reaction was, okay, gay marriage is now a question. Contraception's now a question. Other matters of intimacy are a question. Now the Supreme Court said, "Oh, we're only talking about abortion here. And none of these other rights." If you had to make a bet, Mark, would you bet that those other rights are now at risk, or they're going to stay where they are?
2: Oh, I would think same-sex marriage um, is at risk. I, I, I hate to say that. Um, and I fear that, but I think that is certainly the case. Uh, contraception, maybe not as much at risk, but I think is on the table too. Um, I, I doubt interracial marriage will be on the table. Um, I just don't. I don't think the court's willing to go to go that far. But who knows? But I, I think yes, with same-sex marriage, and even with con- some forms of contraception, I think that that they are at risk. It, I mean, you're talking about five justices who have no, um, no problem just overruling well-established precedent. They, they could easily do that.
0: It seems to me that um, the recent decisions, this, this term of the Supreme Court has damaged the institution. And did I see something today where some representative somewhere uh, introduced a bill to put term limits on the court? Oh, yeah. There's been some talk about that, sure. Yeah. What do you think about that type of a fix to, and the fix I'm thinking about is not necessarily overturning these decisions that I disagree with, but to get more consistency out of the court so that this president or this Congress can't change precedent at will, that it has to be something that you know, it is harder to change on the court through a term limit type of bill.
2: I'm all, I'm all in favor of term limits. The problem is the, the Constitution in Article 3 says that the justices serve during good behavior, which we've interpreted for 200 years now to mean life. So through term limits, you're not going to be able to fi- force any justices off the court. But the I mean, there's some pretty smart people looking into this. And so the term limits that they're developing would would basically add justices if a justice did not step down. So they'd kind of be effectively term limited that way or um, kind of reconstitute the court so that maybe you've got two or three different collections of justices acting as Supreme Court justices. Mm -hmm. So I'm all in favor of of doing something with the court, because I think the court has uh, just assumed too much power. You know, it may be something as simple as, but one thing we forget is that the current court pretty much gets to pick all of its cases, the, the certiorari process, it has discretion. Uh, that's fairly recent, that goes back to like 1987 until 1980, roughly 86, 87, the Rehnquist court is the one that lobbied for this. The justices did not get to pick their cases. They had mandatory appellate jurisdiction. So there were some cases that had to go up. Um, They had discretion, too, but it wasn't as complete as it is now. And something as simple as taking back that power, not letting the justices just select their cases, um, could, I think, achieve some good. It's too much power to say to the Supreme Court, you get to pick the cases you want to hear, because they know how they're going to decide them. And that just allows them to... um, be very policy-driven, as they obviously are.
1: I'm all in favor of keeping people in public office for a set period of time. The longer people are in that office, the staler they get. And I don't even know if that's a word. Staler? More stale. How's that, Yeah you
0: know, I'll text you about it later. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> Mark, uh, it is um, always a pleasure to have you um, uh, on our podcast. And um, uh, we learn so much when you're here. Um, Thank you for your insight. Thank you for your understanding of this area.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed the conversation as well. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you've heard today, tell a friend, we want this show to be more than just us. We want it to be all of us. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important social justice issue. Until then, so long.